Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? Beautiful weather this weekend. I was able to get outside and do our planting. Uh, we don't plant flowers. We just plant vegetables and tomatoes and cucumbers and things like that. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, my legs are completely uh, sore today, but that's all right. Uh, we are so happy to have you here at Morning Hour Chapel with us this morning. Uh, have a question for you. Uh, any bakers here in the congregation? My, yes, Wendy, Betty Crocker up here, Duncan Hines over here. Um, anybody else over here? Oh, okay, right over back here. So we've got some bakers, right? Um, anybody like to, uh, so I, I know you like to bake. Do you like to decorate the cakes? Is it, is it a, a fun thing to decorate or you just like to bake and just, here, here's a cake for you. All right, so we've got a mother-daughter team. One does the baking, the one does, all right, so good. So I've watched a couple of episodes of this show called Cake Boss. Anybody ever seen the show Cake Boss? A lot of hands up this morning. And it's a show based on Carlo's Bake Shop in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is, you know, it's always fun for some, some TV just to hear that Hoboken, New Jersey accent all the time. And as far as I can tell, it's been 152 episodes of the employees in this bake shop creating edible pieces of art in the form of cakes and cookies and other treats, right? Sounds like interesting television. Let's bake a cake and then decorate it. And the few episodes that I've watched, though, were really, really fascinating. And I want to I look at a couple of these uh, creations that, that I've seen over the years from this, from this show. Uh, here's, here's a stadium. I believe it's, I, I think it's Yankee Stadium, but I'm not quite sure but a stadium that they baked. Um, this was made for somebody's 15th birthday. Can you imagine? This is all cake, by the way. This is everything. And this carnival cake, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the, the Ferris wheel is cake, but I think the, the seats are, or some sort of, of, of yummy treat. And look at this cake. Anybody ever seen the Transformers movies? This, oh, I'm sorry, I missed one. Oh, I didn't have the Transformer cake. I must have put it somewhere else. Oh, well. There was a Transformer cake <laughs> that was 7,000 pounds of cake and icing and fondant and all of these things. It took eight persons, eight people crew. It took them three whole days. They were like 12-hour days, eight people creating this just huge cake for this, whatever it was, I think it was the grand opening of the movie or whatever. And creating a cake like the Cake Boss team, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of patience, and sometimes they screw up, and I mean, you watch all the time where they take this huge cake that they've worked like hours on, and they just throw it in the trash. They gotta start all over again. And of course, um, I gave away my, my surprise uh, cakes here, but we can see sometimes that if we take matters into our own hands, sometimes uh, we don't get the results that we want. Um, so this is Elmo. This is a, uh, you know, the first birthday cake. I really, uh, I'm really liking like, uh, I don't know, like Salvador Dali or Picasso Elmo over here, right? And maybe it's just not the right option sometimes when we want to make a cake, you know, uh, and of course, expectations versus reality. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told them not to eat, 
they decided that they were going to take over. They were going to go ahead and try to do things themselves. Instead of relying on the professional, instead of relying on the creator, the one who knew how to do everything, the one who knew what we need all the time, they decided, you know what? I can do it myself. And sometimes, just like these cakes, the results are disastrous. God created our bodies and our souls, and he was doing incredibly detailed work, and he was patient doing it. He, actually, we are the only creation where God used his hands to form us. And we think God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and we just kind of think of this kind of framework. But God created every cell, every molecule, all of our, our veins and our organs and our skin, all of these things. And we, don't have, we, we, we see that God did this all in one day. But of course, the Bible also tells us that to God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So maybe it took a thousand years to create the human body. And God's finishing touch the decoration, but also the most important thing. He had this cake of a man lying in the dirt, and he breathed life into him. The Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A few weeks ago, we uh, began a sermon series called a restoration project. We're talking about God making our souls new as we come to know Jesus Christ, as we accept his free gift of his death and his resurrection, as we confess our sins and become children of God. And if you've been with us, you remember this uh, antique French bread slicer. And we've watched this video where the restorer has been taking this old, dirty, rusty thing, has been restoring it to its original beauty, its original usefulness. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the finished work. I want to take a look at this video here. It's a, it's a little long, but uh, it covers everything. does not look like the same item, does it? When we look at the top, we look at the, all the whole rust and everything. We look at the bottom, it's all nice and shiny and new. And this is what God does with us. It's what he does for us. He, it's what he does around us. He makes us new. And it takes time. And it takes patience. And it takes work. And it's not just God doing the work. It's not just the Holy Spirit doing the work. It's us working with the Holy Spirit. It's us doing these things with God to make us new, to make us useful. I love the end of the video where he actually takes the French bread at the end and he actually shows the usefulness of that tool that he's been restoring so painstakingly. And God's willing to show us our usefulness as well. New life. It's what God desires for us. 
And God is meticulous. God will take as long as he needs to. Just like when he created us. He'll take as long as he needs to to restore us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has been patient for millennia, performing act after act to help his creation to reach repentance. To reach a place where we can finally say, I can't do this. I can't do this. God, creator, he who knows every single molecule in my body, I need you. What does it mean to reach repentance? Repent is a word that come, has come to mean many things, and uh, if we grew up in the maybe 50s, 60s, 70s, we, we know it from people on the, on the street corners carrying around these big signs and yelling, Repent! And getting in people's faces and, and, and doing all kinds of things, and it's come to be kind of a negative, negatively reacted to word. But the dictionary definition of repent or repentance has to do with feelings of remorse, turning away from wrongdoing. But God's word, the Greek word for repentance, is metanoeo. Metanoeo. It's a compound word. Two words put together. The first part of it, meta, means with or amid. Noeo means accompanied by an exercise of the mind or with understanding. So when you put these things together, repentance literally means to change one's mind and purpose and life as a result of knowledge. Repentance is acknowledging that our thoughts and our actions have to this point been bereft of the knowledge of God, bereft of doing what it is that God knows is best for us. And we change our minds. We change our purpose. We change our lives as a result of repentance, as a result of coming to know who God is. Repentance means that we look God in the face. We admit that our thinking and our actions are wrong up to now and that we want to reset our thoughts and actions to be compatible with the thoughts and actions that please Him. And when we repent, we are saved from the results of sin, which is eternal death. The wages of sin is death. Our souls are brought to life through the power of the Holy Spirit when we repent, when we accept the gift of Jesus Christ. As Jesus put it to Nicodemus the Pharisee in the book of John chapter 3, we are born again. Not of flesh, but of the spirit, of the soul. After we repent, after we change our mind, after we come back to a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit begins His work in restoring our soul to make us holy. Holy sounds like a really big churchy word, doesn't it? When we think of holy people, we think of perfection. 
We think in the Christian faith of the apostles or the prophets, the saints. In other faiths, holy people are like Buddha because he is believed to have reached perfect enlightenment. We think of Muslim and Hindu faiths, they have people called fakers. Now, not fakers like F-A-K-E, F-A-K-I-R, fakers, who are monks that forego all property ownership, rely on the, the kindness of others and do nothing but study and do the Word of God. But the Bible calls all of those who follow Christ to be holy. That's what we're called to. We are told that we should be holy. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, God is speaking to Israel and He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. And consecrate, there's that another big church word. Consecrate simply means to dedicate yourself to a purpose. To set yourself apart. Holy means dedicated to a purpose and set apart. God is saying, dedicate yourself to me. Dedicate yourself to a relationship with me. Do the things that I want you to do because I have your best in mind. I know you better than anyone else knows you. I know you better than you know yourself, and I know what is best for you. Set yourself aside to that purpose. Set yourself aside and have a relationship with me. And we've been talking for weeks about all of the different things that the Holy Spirit does as we strive for this holiness. We live our lives so that we can be brought back to the beauty and usefulness that God created for us. And God tells us to set ourselves apart, to consecrate ourselves. And he tells us to do these things, but how do we do them? How do we consecrate ourselves? How do we dedicate ourselves to the purposes of God? How do we learn the things that the Holy Spirit would teach us? And maybe how do we withstand some of the sandblasting and sanding and grinding that the Holy Spirit does as He's restoring us to our original beauty? Let's look at the, some of the things that God would have us do as we travel towards lives of holiness. Historically, the church has called these things spiritual disciplines. And we don't like the word disciplines very much anymore, so we've uh, updated that a little bit to spiritual practices. But really, they're spiritual disciplines. These are activities that we practice faithfully, that we practice regularly, that it takes discipline to do. None of these things can save us, of course, these spiritual disciplines. Only the grace of God can save us. But these are the things that we do after we are saved so that we can walk in a closer relationship with the Father, so that we can continue to set ourselves apart for God's purposes, so that we can be prepared to do whatever it is that God calls us to do. That's spiritual discipline. And these disciplines allow us to know and understand God in ways that we cannot do alone. That's why the Holy Spirit is there with us. Now these disciplines, they fall into two major categories, either personal disciplines or corporate disciplines. Corporate disciplines, group disciplines like 
church-wide disciplines, ministry disciplines, those kinds of things. And many of these personal disciplines we, we have heard of, at least, we know them, reading and studying the Bible, prayer, fasting, and we know some of the corporate disciplines, corporate worship, we come to church every Sunday morning, evangelism, sharing Christ with those who don't know him, going out and serving others, all of these things are disciplines, things that we practice. And, of course, there's a personal spiritual discipline that doesn't get talked about very much. It's called silence and solitude. A lot of us don't have a lot of time for silence and solitude, but we're going to talk in a few weeks about silence and solitude and why it's so important in growing our relationship with God. And, of course, there's another final discipline that either gets talked about all the time or gets talked about never, and that's giving. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks as well. Again, none of these disciplines are things that will make us saved. These are things that help us to set ourselves apart. These are things that help us to grow. These are things that help us to know God better. And all the spiritual disciplines have basis in the Bible. They are all things that were practiced by Jesus during his time on earth. And one of these things that Jesus did very, very often was prayer. We know that Jesus prayed. The Gospels are full of examples of Jesus. Either examples of him praying, examples of him going off to pray. Soon after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus was with his disciples and he prayed for his disciples. In Matthew eleven twenty-five to 26, he said, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's talking about his disciples here. He's talking about those people that have decided to turn away from their lives and follow Jesus because they are looking for a relationship with God. They are looking for eternal life. And Jesus calls them little children. Little children don't have a whole lot of knowledge, but they have a whole lot of faith. And Jesus is thankful to God that he has revealed things to these little children, his disciples. Just before Jesus left the Passover for the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be arrested... Before his death, Jesus offers up a, a lengthy prayer. All of, whew, I'm getting excited here. All of John 17 is a prayer of Jesus to the Father. He prays for his disciples. He prays for all of those who would come after his disciples. He prays for everyone who would believe. And part of that prayer says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He is praying for you. He is praying for you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus was praying for you. 
over 2,000 years ago. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind that Jesus was praying for me. Even as Jesus hung dying on the cross, though, Jesus prayed. Prayed a prayer of forgiveness for those who were executing him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in agony, in suffering, in the wrongness of the crucifixion, Jesus prayed forgiveness over those who were killing him. We also read a lot in Scripture that Jesus went off alone to pray, away from crowds. Luke 5, 15-16 says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Some versions say he would withdraw to the wilderness and pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples, wait here, I'm going to go off by myself to pray. The Bible says that Jesus went off about a stone's throw away and he prayed alone. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was preparing for the worst and he was praying that his father would somehow find a way where he would not have to suffer the pain and the agony and the torture that was coming. But he also prayed, if that's what I have to do, if that is your will, I'm in 100%. When we think of prayer, and especially when we think about Jesus praying, and we read some of the prayers of Jesus in the Gospels, we can feel woefully inadequate to the task. How can I possibly pray like that? We feel that we have nothing to say to God because we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. But the good news is that Jesus has already showed us how to pray. And Jesus has already showed us that sometimes our prayers, especially those prayers in our suffering, may make us feel like we're alone. Jesus prayed about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Wow, that was quick. Not sure what happened there. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, where are you? Why don't you do something? Anybody ever prayed that prayer or is that just me? Even in our deepest doubt, we can pray. Even when we feel like God's not even there, that He's not even listening, we can pray. 
And we can even say something like, God, I don't think you're listening to me, but here goes anyway. Because deep inside, if we have faith, we know he's there, he's listening. And we don't have to hold anything back. We can tell him that we're angry. We can tell him that we're sad. We can tell him that we're worried or despondent. And we don't have to worry that he's going to smite us. We don't have to worry that he's going to not listen to us. We can pray all of these things. Jesus prayed and he modeled prayer. He taught his disciples to pray. Most of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Even if we've never been in church before except for weddings and funerals, we've probably heard the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes we call it the Our Father because that's what it's known for. It's the first couple of words of the prayer, our Father. But before Jesus taught us this pattern of prayer, he taught us some things not to do while we're praying. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that when we pray, some of our prayers might be hypocritical. And he warns us against this. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you go, or when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he tells us that we don't have to go on and on in prayer, we don't have to have these lengthy prayers. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. They're kind of like pastors. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. How incredible is that? How awesome is it that God knows what I need before I even say anything? And then Jesus gives us this pattern for prayer. Pray like this then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, in modern uh, theology, in modern church circles, there is an acronym for this pattern of prayer. It's called the ACTS prayer. And it stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. We adore God when we pray, Hallowed be your name. What we're saying there is even God's name is holy, let alone what he does, let alone the creation that he's created, let alone all of the power that he has. His name is to be worshipped, adored as the creator, the life giver, the protector, the provider, the father. We express thanksgiving when we pray that his will be done because we know that all things come from God. Our jobs, our families, the very breath that we breathe comes from the father and we are thankful for those things. Forgive us our debts or our sins is our act of confession. And when we pray this prayer, when we pray for God to forgive us our sins, 
We ought to be confessing specific sins. Even though God knows what they are, we should be acknowledging before the Father, yes, I understand that this was against you. I understand that this was not pleasing to you. We acknowledge those sins. And by acknowledging those sins, it will re hopefully reinforce in our minds, I will not do that again. Or, I need help not to do that again. When we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that's supplication. Praying for others, that's what that word means, supplication. Saying prayers for others. We're praying that God will give us the power to forgive others. We acknowledge that we don't always treat each other the way that God would have us treat. We wrong others, others wrong us. And we pray to set those things right in supplication. What this prayer is showing us, every time we pray it, is that we are praying for our restoration, the restoration of others, and the restoration of our human relationships. What we're saying when we pray this prayer, we're praying, gracious and loving Father in heaven, thank you for all that you have done for me. Thank you for all that you have given me. Thank you. I give up my own will and I surrender to yours. Let your will be done. Forgive me for those things that I have done against you. And forgive me for those things that I have done against others. And help me to forgive those who have acted against me. Help me to forgive others the way you forgive me, Father. We're praying, Holy Spirit, restore my soul so that I can love God with all my heart and all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength and that I can love others as myself. And maybe more importantly, so that I can love others the way you love me and you love them. Prayer is powerful. A lot of times we think, well, God already knows everything. Why should I pray? We're not praying for God. We're praying for ourselves. We're praying to acknowledge all that God is and all that God does. We're praying to acknowledge that other human beings exist and that I ought to love them as God loves me. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Our Father, 
He asked us to pray that. And he used those words, Our Father, who art in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He meant for this to be prayed by his disciples together. So as we close the service this morning, would you join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you this week.